Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania, how's it going? Not bad. How are you doing, Kevin? And so we're very pleased to have back on our show uh, Matt Kennard, who is a chief investigator for Declassified UK. But for this show, we're also speaking to him about a book he co-authored, a project called Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. That's something that we're all experiencing the impacts of uh, you chronicle as you travel around the world, the different aspects of corporate control of this planet. Um, I think we feel it very viscerally. I'm feeling it really intensely today in the States because we just jammed through a pipeline for uh, a corporation in the United States on behalf of a Senator named Joe Manchin. Uh, Because if we didn't, uh, our country was going to default economically. So they used the debt ceiling as a way to to get this through when they couldn't have in any other way in Congress. And I, there are tons of examples in your books of the corporations throughout the world manipulating these processes so that they can get what they want. So thank you for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, the first the first question, I, I suppose, you know, you have this organized thematically, which as somebody who just put together a book, I have to say that I'm in favor of that. I think it's you know far better rather than to just do a, a, a raw chronology from you know 1800s, 1900s, wherever you want to start through to the present. I think it's easier for people to understand something that's as sprawling as this topic to break it down. So you have it as like corporate armies, corporate justice, corporate aid and welfare and you break it down into these different topics which you know we'll be touching upon in this conversation but but maybe i always like to begin broadly so that we can hit whatever specific areas uh you know you would like to hit so when you when you when you call it the silent coup you know i think everybody has felt the control of corporations over their lives but what do you mean when you call it uh, a silent coup? Well, effectively, it means that corporations have their hands now on the levers of political power. But it hasn't been a coup, say, uh, like Pinochet in, in Chile in 1973, or, or how we imagine a military coup where storming of the palace, the military takes over um, and a dictator takes over. It's been done in a very undercover, secretive way, but very consciously by different power interests, primarily in the corporate sector, but also allied to governments often. And um, just to go back to your your introduction, the, 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 the reason we broke it down like this was this was a huge reporting project. We did it over two or three years and we had got um, a fellowship at the Center for Investigative Journalism in London, which was actually then run by uh, a guy called Gavin McFadgen who was the political um, mentor uh, and uh, uh, journalistic mentor to Julian Assange, but also, it's not really well known about, but also uh, a young Bernie Sanders in Chicago in the, in the 1960s. So this was a very important figure, but not many people know about him. He died in 2016, but effectively he gave us these fellowships and I, the book is co-authored with Claire Provost, who left The Guardian to take this fellowship. I'd previously been at the Financial Times and we started this fellowship and we both talked about um, what the biggest issues of the day globally were. Um, 
because this we we had the chance to do something really ambitious because Gavin was a bit of an anarchist, so he just sort of said, <clears throat> "You have a two years to do whatever you want, and you've got a travel budget. Use it wisely." That was basically all he said. So we said Let, we might as well be as, as ambitious as possible, and we agreed that corporate power and the corporate coup, i.e., the, the the taking over of the state and a, a, a construction of different mechanisms through which they can exert their their will on the political systems domestically all over the world, but also internationally, was the major issue of the day. And Claire had actually been working on a particular system, um, which I think is emblematic of this uh, coup. Um, and this is called the uh, Investor State Dispute Settlement System, or ISDS. I don't know how many of your listeners will have heard of it, but they're going to hear about it more and more because this was a legal system that was set up um, in the 60s um, to allow corporations to sue states for enacting policies they don't like. Um, so we we thought that, that was a good way in. So we started the first trip we did, and we went to 25 countries eventually on five continents. First trip we did was to El Salvador because there was a case where a Canadian mining company had taken El Salvador to um, court um, to because it hadn't gotten them an environmental permit and was suing them for, for $300 million which was a huge amount of money for El Salvador, which is a small and poor country. Um, they were suing them at a place called the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, or ICSID, which is an arm of the World Bank that was set up in 1966. It's the primary venue where these cases are heard. But as we did the reporting for that, we sort of saw that this was part of a, in, uh, a supranational system of governance that corporations had built in the, in, in the period when formal empires were crumbling to ensure that their interests were preserved when they couldn't have formal uh, mechanisms of control on the developing world. So garrisons of troops or whatever it is. In formal empire, you had satraps that did, 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 did your bidding in the developing world. They didn't have that anymore. And they were thinking, how are we going to maintain our control and maintain our interests? The ISDS system is, well, is uh, an emblematic example of that, but it's not the only one. Um, so we went around the world. We also went to South Africa because there was a, a, a case there, which is was probably the craziest case we looked into, where after the fall of apartheid um, in the 90s, the, the post-apartheid government of Mandela instituted and subsequent governments instituted black empowerment policies, which were about um, rectifying the historical injustices. One of one of facet of that was to get, companies had to give a certain percentage, I think it's like 30% of their companies to historically disadvantaged um, people in South Africa, so black people. Now, an Italian granite company didn't want to do that. So they took South Africa to one of these courts um, and to say that we want compensation for for, for having to, to institute black empowerment policies. Actually, that case was settled out of court. Um, and the Italian company was able to circumvent that ruling and they didn't have to give that percentage of their company away. Um, so I, I, and we went to Hamburg, we went to this, we went to countless countries and really it, it was an eye-opening experience because it showed that there was a system whereby corporations could not only get huge amounts of compensation, we're talking billions of dollars sometimes, there was a famous case in Ecuador where Ostentil Petroleum won billions of dollars from the Ecuadorian government. But also it, 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 it has caused and is causing regulatory and policy making chill around the world because it's not only the cases that get to court 
that are that are important and many governments now around the world are worried when they're making internal policy making uh, decisions and deliberations about what whether they should i don't know for example in, grant an environmental permit or allow a company um to dig for gold in in, a, in an area where it's going to destroy the environment a lot of the deliberations now are are we going to get taken to one of these courts if we don't grant that permit and one case in guatemala we got through the freedom of information act in guatemala we got some internal deliberations they were having about a mine a prospective mine in in guatemala and they will this is exactly what they were talking about and in fact they, in the end they didn't grant the environmental permit to the mining i'm oh, sorry they did grant the environmental permit to the mining company because they were too worried about uh, um getting sued but what what this is this this system is enshrined through a web of treaties uh, and uh, free trade agreements around the world and it basically affects nearly every single person on the planet and it's all done in secret as well that's the other thing it's very very difficult to get documents about this so we started on that or, or, or looking into that system and investigated that for six months and then as we were going around we were noticing that a lot of the um, uh, countries uh, that were getting hit with um, uh, uh, these these uh, cases were also uh, in ensnared in a system, uh, another part of the World Bank, which was which we looked into called the International Finance Corporation, which was an which was a the which is the private sector lending arm of the World Bank, which was also set up in this same period, post-colonial period, so-called post-colonial period in 1956, the IFC was set up. And that was about promoting the entry of corporations into um, uh, the developing world. And, and it was a Cold War thing as well. They wanted to stop uh, Soviet penetration of the developing world. So they thought one way to do that would be to uh, increase the size of the private sector in these companies and, and, and reformulate economies much more along neoliberal lines. <clears throat> so we looked into that. Um, for another six months, not just the IFC, we looked into the whole aid uh, industry because aid, again, was uh, developed essentially out of the institutions of formal empire. They repackaged a lot of them um, and said that we are now about development and we want the poor people of the world to develop. Now, what model that did they promote for that development was all about greasing the entry of uh, corp uh, corporations, primarily Western corporations, into those developing worlds. Also, the IFC had a has an advisory arm and its advisory arm tells these companies countries to privatize their industries deregulate their economies that's the only way you can develop etc etc so we, that i'll just be quick on this because it's it's worth getting across the whole thesis of the book as we were going around looking into the aid industry and how that locked uh, the developing world into corporate friendly uh, policies we also kept on seeing special economic zones um which are small well, often sometimes they're not even small, which are areas which are chiseled uh, land territory chiseled off from um, uh, national t uh, governments, and and they have their whole uh, their whole own regime uh, in terms of investment, taxes, labour laws, and they're effectively corporate utopias, uh, and they're all over the world, and they uh, allow corporations to circumvent national law in a lot of places. Um, they've taken off really in China, actually, that, that, that Chinese see the special economic zones as the model uh, which is behind their rise to economic superpower status. Alongside that, there's also another facet of that is the uh, private cities which are taking off around the world, which are corporate um, 
corporate built and corporate owned and corporate run cities. And then obviously you have gated communities and all these different ways that the the, the one percent and and uh, the people that are benefiting from this corporate system are locking themselves off from the society which is becoming increasingly um unequal and obviously uh, all the problems that are attendant to to that inequality they want to lock themselves off from them so there's all this high high degree of uh, uh there's all this territory which is just separated off from from national territory then part another part of that is you have to defend yourself physically and by force when you're when you're separating yourself off from that society um and so the final chapter is all about uh, sorry the final section is all about private armies and private security because we were seeing that everywhere we went as well just the massive advent of companies being in control of the guns uh, and the resort to force which if you look at the history of political thought and political philosophy a lot of uh, 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 the, these kind of theorists have said that the the, the power of the state essentially rests on the fact that it has the legal resort to force and the legal resort to violence. That's now changing. That's now moved over a lot of a lot of places over to the corporation. So what the, what 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 does that mean when 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 the state is not in control of the the guns? So the final section looks into that and kind of traces it alongside all these other trends that I've talked about. Uh, and what you see is that in terms of the coup, in my opinion, it, 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 this has been a, a battle that's been happening for. 400 years or more than because the first joint stock company or the first modern joint stock company now that that that's a company which we kind of all know now which is where you has tradable shares and people can invest in a company the first one this modern one that historians say was in 1955 in in london in the in england um and since that time there's just been a, a civil rights battle the corporation has been waging against the state to get more and more rights and uh, to gain more and more power over that state a lot of those battles were won in the 19th century particularly in the U in the uk and, and in the united states but after the second world war it was the it, the, the it was the age of the multinational that's when the multinational really took off and that they this international architecture uh, to enforce corporate control really was the was the basis of that and i think that now in 2023 we're kind of at the end of or I think the coup is nearly complete. I don't think that the state has any uh, power effectively, um, which is separate from the corporation. I think the corporation obviously has nominal power of the state, but I think a lot of its decisions are being made in the interest of corporations now completely, that they're, they're not representing uh, the, the people. And I'll just end on this anecdote. One of the things that I asked people, uh, poor people, when I went uh, from Colombia, whether it be peasants in Colombia, or uh, uh, farmers, uh, subsistence farmers in Tanzania, I'd often say to them when they were in these battles with corporations because they were getting moved off their land or um, they were getting, in the case of Colombia, they were getting killed by uh, uh, paramilitaries or private corporations uh, uh, hired by these companies. I'd say to them, well, well, what's the government doing for you? Like the government's effect, uh, it meant to work for you. And every single one would say, no, 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 no. The, the government works for the corporation. They don't work for us. And that was, across the board um so that is that is what uh, that's the situation we're in now we have governments that are working for the corporate sector not for its people um and that's obviously been the case for a while but i think that the the the, the, the control now is nearly total yeah it's really shocking and also just like overwhelming because your book is a very kind of like around the world um 
type book, literally every continent. And it's just one thing after another. I was really struck by like the idea of democracy on trial. And, you know, I noticed that Stephen Donziger uh, actually blurbed your book and he's somebody that that really applies to uh, in terms of the way he was persecuted. Uh, we actually had him on our show recently. And I feel like uh, this was actually um, a lot of the theme of what we talked about. So I'm sure he like absolutely loved your book. But, you know, I I'm, thank you for breaking down the way that you uh, split it up. And, you know, obviously all of this, all of these various aspects of this are so important. But there was one in particular that I'm wondering, I'm sure Kevin's going to ask you probably to elaborate on others as well. Uh, but one in particular that I wanted you to elaborate on is the sort of like aid and development aspect of all this and the way that there's this like kind of international you know, development financing system and international aid system that actually works in tandem with these sort of corporate masters of the universe. Uh, and maybe you could talk a, a bit about some specific examples that you give in the book. Yeah, I think there's two sides to this, actually, which one of them I don't we don't talk about in the book. And one's more related to what I do in my day job, which is with Declassified UK. And that I'll start with that one, which is that the aid industry um is a massive tool for geopolitical control um and uh, it, they talk about it in those terms in sort of internal documents so recently for example with declassified i've done a story about how the uk government spent uh, uh nearly half a million pounds on an anti-government coalition in venezuela that was done with public public aid money i did one about an aid program in Brazil, which was about getting Brazil to under Bolsonaro to privatize their oil and gas. I did one about there's a 75 million pound um, aid project in Mexico run by the UK, which was about getting uh, UK companies to benefit from the privatization of Pemex, which happened in 2014. Um, so there's there, that, that's obviously the, the, the last one is the last two are about uh, corporations, but it's also about exerting control because it's about getting the UK government as an advisor, getting the UK government interests uh, and uh, uh, close to these to these governments. The second part is um, what you talk about, which is the corporate control. And that is how I think that is how aid and the development sector has been from the start, because a lot, as I said previously, a lot of these institutions that um that are now um that i can talk about the uk side that are now a part of the uk development financing world came actually out of the the formal empire that we had uh but they had to repackage it in a in an age when that wasn't allowed you weren't allowed to talk in those terms empire became a dirty word so they they developed they developed this new language which was all about helping the developing world uh, helping end poverty which is the stated goal of the world bank um because they needed a new a, P, a new pr campaign but effectively what what it was was always about uh creating a, a economies which would work in the interests of western corporations and, and primarily us uh, and uk corporate power um and that's what you see to this day i mean in the in in the in the US, you have this thing called Tide Aid, um, where a lot of the aid, well, nearly all the aid contracts go to US companies. It's explicit. Whereas, and there was a, it was a bit of controversy in the UK about that. And then the UK officially untied their aid uh, in the 90s. Um, but 
again, that didn't really happen. And, and nearly all the, the public contracts go to pri uh, UK companies. So it's about, it's about in, uh, providing a massive subsidy to the private sector. And that is why the right wing uh, promote it. Like, for example, I'll give you an example, which I, which, which I think is quite illustrative. David Cameron, uh, the Prime Minister of the UK from 2010 to 2016, um, and his, uh, uh, his Chancellor, George Osborne, they enacted an absolutely brutal austerity programme in Britain, which killed, which they say excess deaths in Britain after that austerity programme was over 100,000. Like, uh, it was extremely savage, one of the most savage, punitive attacks on the poor that there's ever been in Britain. At the same time as they were doing that, they were promoting massively that they were going to commit Britain to 0.7% of its GDP for foreign aid. So they were saying, we want to help the poor in the developing world at the same time as they were hammering the, the, the domestic poor. Now, obviously, they didn't care about the, the, foreign, the, the poor in the foreign world. But what that 0.7% of GDP constituted was a massive subsidy to their friends in the corporate sector um and that, that that that's why they support it and that is often why all these sort of uh corporate liberals corporate republicans they all support the foreign aid budget because it's a massive uh, su um, subsidy to the private sector and it's also importantly about keeping economies working in the interests of corporations because the World Bank, <clears throat> the Bretton Woods institutions, which were created after the Second World War, uh, the two main parts of that is the World Bank and the IMF. Now, they have a massive role in designing domestic, uh, sorry, uh, developing world economies around the world. And the policy prescriptions which they give are extremist and became really extreme in the 70s and 80s um, uh, in the neoliberal period. There was a debt crisis in Latin America in the 70s, and they leveraged that that debt crisis to enact a huge amount of extremist policies which are called the washington consensus uh the consensus doesn't go much further than washington and london but they called it the washington consensus and what it was about was deregulating your economy getting rid of capital controls getting rid of subsidies for any anything like food or fuel or or anything that would help the poor uh and and deregulating your economy to allow cor corporations to enter and run the economy effectively uh, much easier um, and that is, we're still in that stage. Those those organisations haven't changed at all. And there was there was some pushback in the 90s and early 2000s before September 11th. There was quite a lot of focus on how the Bretton Woods institutions had, uh, and the aid and the aid institutions had after the Second World War. Uh, sorry, from the 70s, pushed this extremist agenda. There was a famous book by Joseph Stiglitz, who was chief economist at the World Bank, but he came out as a kind of whistleblower and, and wrote that book globalization as discontents and it was he used the word extremist to describe the ideology which had taken hold of the world bank but um but we're still in that period um and the the aid organizations are, are at the forefront and have and it's important i'll finish with this it's important to note that this is not a perversion of a system which was set up with good intentions it was always designed like that from the start and if you look at the declassified documents uh, or the archival documents, which we did, we went to the World Bank archives in Washington, D.C. They say it openly in, 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 in those terms. They talk about it, uh, about how they can use it to promote corporate power and, and promote you know, U.S. geopolitical interests. 
Um, it's just that this public posture is completely at, at, uh, at odds, but that's the one that everyone gets. Yeah, uh, when I was going through this section of your book, I was struck by something that I know very little about, which is the new alliance for food security and nutrition in Africa that you describe as being launched in the 2012 at the 2012 G8 summit by Obama. And uh, you take uh, a look at some of the impact of it. It was condemned as a new form of colonialism. Uh, that's how you quoted it in your book. I think in particular, you know, within that framework, I'm interested in hearing you share about going to Tanzania and what you were able to uncover there, especially in the context of the connection with uh, the UK, with the monarchy, um, with uh, Queen Elizabeth, and also uh, De Beers um, and the the mining operations there. I'll, I'll just note that uh, something thematically uh, or something that's in common with a lot of these is that you'll find that there's a mining operation that is uh, central to the push for uh, changing the laws so that these investors have more rights to determine policy in government? Yeah, I'll start with Tanzania. So <clears throat> Tanzania is quite an interesting uh, case because uh, they, they had like a, a extremely sort of um, well thought of uh, president uh, for 20 years from the 60s to the mid 80s called Julius Nyerere. And he was, he's kind of seen as one of the, the, the godfathers of African socialism. Um, so they had, a, but that was, that's been picked apart. His legacy has been destroyed uh, because of these different institutions which have come in after him uh, from the eighties. And so I went there um, to look at two things. One was a diamond mine, which had been uh, received a, a big uh, development um, loan from the IFC, that the private sector lending arm of the World Bank, and the other part was to, uh, was part of the new alliance. Um, they had, they created this new what they called uh, a, a corridor, an agrarian corridor, but effectively it was a way of getting corporations into Tanzania, and and people were getting kicked off their land. So I went to talk to some communities that were being kicked off their land. So I'll start with the diamond mine, and the diamond mine was pretty eye opening because for me it's kind of again, emblematic of how corrupt this whole system is. This is development financing, public money, because the World Bank's publicly funded, that was going to give a non-commercial loan to a company uh, called Petra Diamonds, which is listed in London, to develop and expand their diamond mine in Tanzania. Now, that's not usually what you'd expect aid money to be spent on, but actually it often is. And their argument was, the diamond mine gives all these benefits to the local community like jobs um and they invest in in schools and hospitals around uh the the site and stuff most of that's untrue the job stuff there is there is some truth to it providing jobs but I, so i went to the diamond mine and i talked to uh, I, and and it's kind of um a very good example of how this the 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 geography of corporate rule around the world because it, it, it creates a two-tiered existence. Um, so in Tanzania, which is quite a poor country, you go around, you, I, I drove from the airport and you see the, the poverty all around, um, uh, homeless people, people that can't afford food. And then you arrive at the diamond mine, which they call a campus, 
and you've got the big imposing metallic gates and you go through and then it's perfectly tarmac roads straight away. There's like a school and a hospital that works and everything's really looks really nice and everyone looks happy. Um, and then you talk to uh, uh, the people and they're saying, oh, yeah, well, uh, the people within the mine, the PR people and the finance people, and they're saying, oh, yeah, we provide all this wonderful stuff to the um, the the local community and they also then say oh yeah but we, we needed the world bank money because we weren't we weren't making a profit um and we, we're not profitable uh and we haven't paid so they hadn't paid tax for over 10 years so the world bank's giving money to a, a non-profitable diamond mine as their development uh, so anyway all that and then they the, the interesting part of it was that they took me to some schools uh that they'd built around the mine site not within the campus but actually like neighboring and they were really down on their luck uh facilities like they the kids packed into like a small uh brick school that probably cost i don't know five or ten grand, thousand pounds to build not a lot of money so and i actually talked to some teachers away from my pr minders and they were saying look this company doesn't pay any tax in our country so the central government's getting no um revenue from this diamond company and yet they come and act like they're our saviors by building these really cheap schools uh, and that is kind of how it works and that's the whole basis of csr's corporate social responsibility which is about promoting this idea that um uh, corporations are, are, are needed to develop and are, are providing all these wonderful benefits the reality is that companies are avo uh, avoiding and evading ta paying tax to a central government leaving governments with with the inability to provide any kind of public services for the people yet acting like um the saviors by by giving little little bits here and there to 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 local communities and actually that was a very conscious um uh move by mining companies particularly in the 80s because I, I previously covered the mining uh sector for the financial times for a year and um one of the things I found when I looked at, started looking into it was that in the 80s and 90s, mining companies were, were having real trouble operating in the developing world because the, their reputation was so bad and the reputational issues were meaning that they were going to get, they were getting kicked out and that it was impossible for them to, um, to operate in a lot of places. They called it, they were losing their quote unquote social license. So corporate social responsibility, the CSR industry, they pump huge amounts of money in to try and launder their reputation and try and uh, provide a, a way for them to to get back into these developing countries and operate uh freely um so uh, and and later down the line this is what this creates they build these kind of rubbish schools and uh, uh provide these little um crumbs uh and act like they've come that they're the saviors so there was that and then in another part the other the other story i did was um about yes yeah, sagcot and the new alliance and how i went to visit some i went deep into like the tanzanian um uh, jungle to to talk to uh, some farmers uh, who had been kicked off their land by a company that was benefiting from the new alliance aid money and they were just saying yeah there, there was no consultation the the company just came and told us that we have to get off our land and that was another um uh, a light bulb moment because you realize that actually these development institutions and this development money, they don't care about what kind of um, communities they're destroying. They just want to get access to new resources or new land or whatever it is to, to, to up their profits. And that was what I was hearing all around the world. 
um, they do it all in the name of development, all in the name of aid, all in the name of alleviation of poverty, but it's all empty words. Um, and you see that on the ground, like the the people, the people that understand this stuff are the people, the victims, really, you know, like when you talk, I'll talk to people in the World Bank and they just regurgitate all the useful ideology and the useful propaganda about what these systems do. But on the ground, people have a much more clear eyed view of what these systems are because they see the results of them. Um, whereas the people in Washington are kind of protected from the results. They get their, their nice reports, which are sanitized back in back in Washington. So um, but Tanzania is one example of a system which is global and all this, this the, the 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 diamond mine the struggle of this local community in tanzania they're mirrored in every single country those those two those two examples in Myanmar, we also went to Myanmar, burma there was a five-star hotel being built by the ifc uh, with ifc loans there was a special economic zone being built by the japanese aid agency which is called jica um, called Tilawa, which we went there and people were being kicked off their land to build this special economic zone. So again, it's just all, it's, it's global. I want you to talk about another aspect of this, which is like your, like, I think this is so fascinating, the issue of like corporate armies. Um, and you go around to a bunch of different places. You also talk about a bit of battle testing uh, in Palestine. You talk about privatizing borders. Um, I, can you go into a little bit of that? I mean, I think this is like something that obviously is more prevalent, if not only mostly seen in the global South, though you could maybe make the argument that there are certain parts of the global North where there's like, you know, private armies here and there, but not quite in the same way. Um, but yeah, talk a bit about that and some of the particular specific uh, things that you witnessed. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge trend. I mean, the interesting thing was that, as you guys will be well aware, that this really became an issue and a mainstream issue during the war in Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. Private military companies, particularly Blackwater. Um, I, I think and, and I, the first book I, I wrote was about the US military. Uh, so I did some research on, on, on this. And I think that by 2007 or eight, there were more private contractors, US private contractors in Iraq than there were Department of Defense personnel. So, and this became a very mainstream issue, but it kind of has, uh, become less uh, mainstream now and but the the, 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 the dynamic hasn't stopped now there's um, uh, private security all around the world and it's not just ones that are contracted by governments it's also corporations um, hiring other corporate uh, hiring corporate uh, corporate armies and corporate security to guard their sites so and and also we're at the start of this. This is a, this is a this is a part of this story, the coup that is kind of the most recent one. It, and and there's no regulation on this at all. There's there's zero regulation. There's voluntary agreements that most of these companies sign up to, but they're not binding. So it's a complete wild west um, uh, industry. And I, I, I can I can talk particularly about one case um, which you mentioned, which was. Uh, uh, Palestine and Israel. Now, I went there in 2016 and did a did a lot of research about how the Israelis that were privatizing their, uh, the occupation of the West Bank. And we went to checkpoints uh, and we'd see that they were being um, uh, manned not by the so-called IDF, but by uh, a private company called, I think it was Modin Ezrachi or something like that. I can't remember the, the proper name, but but effectively, these were people that were involved in 
shootings. They, 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 we, we, we looked into a case where they killed Palestinians and the Palestinian uh, families have been trying to get information about what had happened to, to their, their, their family members. And they couldn't at all because one facet of this is that governments want to privatize uh, the, the security uh, apparatus because it is a level of accountability that they that that is much lower for for corporations than than governments. So it's in, it's virtually impossible to get any information about what happened in that case, but also across the board. So that was one trend. The other the other is that it's it's increasingly difficult for um, people on the ground to know what uh, what security force they're dealing with. But like I talked to a Palestinian investigator. Who, who was in Ramallah and he was talking about how now there were so many different companies and different uh, uniforms that it was impossible for him to really locate um, who each well, each crime that he was looking to, who had done what. And I think that's another part of it as well. It's, it, you, can, you can disperse uh, accountability. Um, in Colombia, I went to uh, there to look into a, a, a case that uh, had been... Uh, it's quite famous about Chiquita, the banana company, formerly called United Fruit. They changed their name because they they, they became known for overthrowing governments and <laughs> other other yeah. bad stuff. Um, but they 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 had hired paramilitaries to um, or paid paramilitaries in in Colombia to take out opponents of their projects and also to take out trade unionists and and other people. And that actually was a case that was being heard in the United States under, under the alien tort statute. Um, and that again is another part of this. That was a company hiring other private interests to, to carry out their work. And that again is, is all over the world because there's no accountability. That is the, I, I, my personal take is that's why they love it. The, my, in El Salvador, I, I mentioned at the start, the mining company um, that was, that, that had sued, the uh, the El Salvador the El Salvadorans for for uh, at this court a, lo a lot of opponents of that mine or, or some opponents of that mine had been killed but they couldn't track who had uh, any kind of accountability and we saw that all over the world it was very very it's very very rare that you get any accountability for for the for the murder of opponents of these resource projects and part of that is because they hire private interests to do it um, and I think going forward that it's going to be one of the major major um, problems we face. Um, uh, anyone who who believes in democracy or uh, an engaged citizenry, because with no regulation uh, and corporations increasingly control of the of the political system, um, there's nothing to say that corporations can't just have their own like official armies, you know, or like have uh, like they, and then they can't. They might go to war with each other. There might be a Coca Cola v Pepsi war over over in Colombia over a resource. Sounds mad, yeah. but that that is not. There's nothing to stop that happening, um, and the only reason I think that it hasn't haven't happened yet is because, as I say, this is a trend that has started a bit later than the other ones I've, I've discussed. Um, and yeah, and it's it, for me, it's the it's the scariest part of the whole thing because I don't think there's any will um, in the political system or any mechanism really anymore for the political system to stop this. Um, there's been various um, uh, um, uh, attempts to regulate private militaries which have been killed by the US or the UK. It's interesting now because they talk like one of the big, uh, we, we can talk in sort of um, 
uh, open and, and serious terms about the problem with Wagner Group, right, with Russia. Everyone talks about how that allows the Putin regime to escape accountability. But we can't talk about it when we talk about our own private military companies, which is all the same problems. Um, so, I mean, the Wagner Group is a problem. Uh, uh, they have very little accountability, but but what, what we have is much much more serious in terms of the power that it can project. Yeah, and when you think of the the loss of public space as a result of this privatization, um, the powers that are being extended to police in order to help um, and enable this securitization, and part of this section of your book is just in general, the rise of the private security industry with G4S and, and just, you know, going to an office building or going to a complex and seeing a security guard there. Um, and also the proliferation of these jobs, just like as a thing that people do as employment, if you go back 25, 30 years, this was not as popular of a job as it is now to just have guards there at all of these places. Um, um, and uh, so I think that's important. You know, we're, we're coming to the end of our show and connected to this, I'd like to raise just um, a couple things that are happening where you are in the UK. Um, if you don't mind, it's a little bit away from uh, your book, Status Coup, but I'm pretty, uh, or, or sorry, um, Silent Coup. Status Coup is another show. Um, yeah. Silent Coup is your book. And uh, the fact that the counterterrorism police, the British counterterrorism police detained Kit Clarenberg, who had been a guest on our show previously, who we talked to, who we talked to about um, the reporting that it seems he's been targeted for in the UK, this Schedule 3 law that's in the 2019 terrorism law, but then there's also Schedule 7 under the 2000 terrorism law, the way that this has been abused uh, recently. It was also abused in detaining Ernest Murray, who is a French publisher who had come to London for a book festival. And just what this means in the context of the fact that Julian Assange is still detained in the high security prison in Belmarsh. And then now you see the Metropolitan Police have apparently uh, been sending notices to people who they still the FBI still wants to have questioned in relation to the case, despite the fact that uh, there's this global pressure, despite some of the actions we've seen unfolding in Australia within the government, which has been remarkable. And that, you know, um, Andrew O'Hagan, right, is was the ghostwriter that worked with Assange. They had a falling out. It wasn't a great working relationship. It didn't really produce an autobiography that Assange approved, but he's in total solidarity with Julian. He says that he would not give any information to the FBI. He will not cooperate. Uh, but we do see the Metropolitan Police in the UK working on behalf of the US to still investigate, even though they already issued an indictment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> everything you've outlined there is really an illustration of something really quite sinister which is happening in the uk and i think the uk uniquely um is pushing to clamp down on freedom of the press free speech freedom to protest because another element of this which you haven't mentioned which is that there's been all these draconian um pieces of legislation passed 
to uh, stop protests, particularly aimed at Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil and, and uh, climate change protesters. What is more sinister for me <clears throat> is the lack of coverage this gets in the media, because I think that that is really illustrative of um, what the media's role is in Britain. Uh, because a lot of these things that are outrageous and are clamping down on our freedoms um, and effectively erasing our freedoms here uh, would not happen if they were problematized by the media, but they're not at all. Assange is, the, for me, the, the illustrative case because he has been in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison in London now for over four years. And there hasn't been one single investigation in the British mainstream media about the legal case around him or anything that happened to him before he um, uh, went into Belmarsh in the Ecuadorian embassy. This is despite a huge secret um, police operation called, um, um, well, uh, yeah, police operation and intelligence operation against him, which, um, which we've done quite a lot of work on at Declassified. And obviously the fact that he's now in a British maximum security prison, you would think that the British media might be interested in it. And we've published countless um, investigations of this case at Declassified. And I think if any of those had been published or some of those had been published in the mainstream media, there would have been a political reaction or there would have been pressure on the political system to uh, either explain it and then and then maybe maybe solve it. Uh, but but they've got away with it because it's completely uh, pushed under the pushed under the rug. I don't, I don't know if you saw recently, but um, the uh, one one of the uh, central um, people at Reporters Without Borders, Rebecca Vincent, tried to uh, go to Belmarsh uh, and was 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 not even allowed in. This is and 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 she said uh, publicly that she's had more at, uh, trouble accessing. The, the legal system, the legal cases around the hearings around Assange and, and obviously him inside Belmarsh than she has in places like Erdogan's Turkey. Um, and that is that that stuff hasn't even been reported in the mainstream media. And sorry uh, to interrupt you, but can I steer you to why we don't have an appeal uh, ruling from the High Court of Justice yet? I'm just wondering, since you're actually from the country, yeah. why why we could go almost a year without somebody getting an answer from this court? I, I, I don't know. It's completely mad to me. I, my, obviously, we all come up with theories in the absence of any um, hard evidence. But one of them was I was thinking that maybe something is being negotiated in the background and they're trying to delay just enough time that they can then just, uh, just spring him and, and send him to Australia or whatever that agreement would be. Because I can't understand it. It's completely mad. Like uh, he's been there for four, for four, um, for four years now uh, as a remand prisoner. He's not even he's not convicted of anything. Um, he, uh, so I, I I I can't help you. I don't know what the lawyers are saying. I mean, I think that well, the, the, the 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 to move forward now they're gonna. I think they have to grant an appeal. Although I don't have any trust in the legal system here. Uh, in this case. Um, because they, it's been shown to be completely corrupted um, and completely irregular that what what they do, but they've got. I think for public relations purposes, they're going to have to grant him appeal because obviously he won the original case, uh, ruling, and then that was reversed at appeal by a U.S. Uh, by the U.S. Uh, appeal. 
So they're going to have to allow him to then appeal the original ruling. Um, but they might not. But if they do, I think that's that's that then happens, and then that that will that will be another six months down the line, maybe. And then when if that gets rejected, then it will have to. Um, then he can go to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, which can give a, a ruling, but doesn't have to be applied by the U, by the UK courts. It's an advisory. Um, but I mean, I I think I I don't know what to think because I always think okay maybe that maybe there, there's something going on in the background that, that this is embarrassing for the US and the well particularly the UK. Um, but then you hear, as you mentioned in your uh, introduction there to this subject, you you mentioned the the new FBI probe into Assange. That was that uh, that seems to me to be a signal from the US because there's no. I mean, Andrew Hagen is a is a bit part player, I imagine, from that from that time. He he wrote he was writing a ghost uh, uh, he was ghost writing a autobiography, but he wasn't involved. I don't think in the releases around the, the cables. So why would they suddenly want evidence from him in two thousand now? So to me, it's a signal to say, look, we're still we're still pursuing this. Um, so that kind of goes against what we've been hearing from the Australian government and uh, Assange's lawyers. But uh, so I don't really understand what's going on. I think that I th- underneath it all, I think that the US is kind of, would, would, does want a resolution that doesn't involve him going to the US because I just think that the circus around him ending up in the US would just be so, so bad for, for the US internationally. It's becoming a problem for them to project power internationally anyway because if you see, if they ever talk about press freedom now, it's the same with the UK government, they just get trolled to into oblivion by people posting pictures of him of Assange getting hauled out of the Ecuadorian embassy and and fair enough you know it is a complete contradiction of what they say but that that's part of it but there is elements within the US state and between in the blob that are powerful that are just that and they're they're people that are just saying look he he went too far and we're not going to let him go and it seems like at the moment those people those hardliners within the intelligence establishment are, are, are winning and may, maybe will win in the end. And I think with the Trump, it came out, didn't it, with the, with the Trump pardoning um, at, the end of his, at the end of his term, that he, he wanted to pardon Assange, or, but was told by some scary people in the intelligence establishment, look, you will never be able to run again. We will stop you any, uh, doing anything if you pardon Assange. So obviously there's a... There's there's elements within the U, U.S. state that are just uh, not going to let this go. Well, on that note, I actually do want to ask another question, but I have to like, can I ask it and then? <laughs> Why don't you bolt and then I'll get yeah, his answer and, and then I'll yeah, wind okay, this down. Because I'm curious, you know, when we talk about this sort of like silent coup, this corporate coup around the world, how do you place this in the context? of these geopolitical rivalries. Like we have this Cold War taking place right now, the US is escalating against China and you actually have like an increasing number of these countries in the global South that are forming alliances with one another, basically out of just common grievances because they're either sanctioned by the US or they're targeted in some way by the US. And then you've also got, you know, these new economic blocks forming such as BRICS, for example, which of course includes countries like India, which is very close to the US but as well as a lot of countries that aren't, right? So like Russia and China. Um, And then, you know, South Africa, which is kind of like, you know, goes both ways. Um, But regardless, like you do seem, we do seem to be witnessing a changing or very slowly shifting global order right now where there's 
more than one pole of power. Um, people like to refer to this as multipolarity, as I'm sure you know. So I'm just curious, you know, how do you place all of this in the context of an increasingly multipolar world? And do you think in some ways like a multipolar world, even if it's not like capitalism versus communism, like in the past, could actually be perhaps beneficial to, um, to I guess, taking away some of that global corporate power? That's yeah, a tough uh, it's, it's a good question, and I think that is it, it, it's the only hope we have is a multi multipolar world, and that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be a supporter of either side. Um, I think that we have a multipolar world; it gives the developing world or uh, leaders in the developing world and movements the option of organizing around different poles and gives them an option of being independent. And you've seen that in Latin America with. Um, with Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, a lot. I don't, I don't think that those uh, countries could have survived, and their progressive governments could have survived as long uh, if they hadn't had China to 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 help them uh, economically and uh, geopolitically. Uh, and that has that that has implications for corporate power, obviously, because if you want to escape the corporate, the Western enforced and Western ruled corporate system. Um, if you've got another poll to organize around, you can do that and you can be independent. Um, uh, uh, the, the interesting thing is that uh, you mentioned it's not communism v capitalism. And that is an interesting facet of this because we went to China for the book as well. We went to Shenzhen, which is its flagship special economic zone opened in 1980 by Deng Xiaoping. And China is hyper capitalist. More so, like this in Shenzhen, it's it's insane. Like workers have no rights. Um, corporations run rampant. Um, the only role for the state is just as a surveillance tool for the corporations. So there's no model that is um, different to the corporate system. And the corporations have infested the communist world. And and actually, the special economic zone is quite was a really um, useful in, invention for the Chinese Communist Party because what it allowed was to have hyper-capitalism but in very defined areas so the Communist Party could control the state and maintain control of the state while developing the private sector and its private uh, uh, these hyper-capitalist corporate utopias around around the country and I think um, that's probably going to happen in, in other authoritarian regimes but um, I think that uh, the move to the multipolar world is a, is a whatever those two poles are is a good thing because it means when independent anti-corporate pro-democracy pro-resource nationalism uh governments come to, to power they have two um options that they can play off each other um and uh, what, what one interesting part of that is, example of that is bolivia under Evo morales which um allied heavily with the Chinese actually um, and was able to get huge amounts of investment and was able to survive while it was doing really radical um, anti-corporate policies. It renegotiated lots of contracts. I interviewed Evan Morales and he said that previously it was 12% for the Bolivians and 88% for the corporations. He reversed that and that's 88% for the Bolivians and 12% for the corporations. He did that. He also nationalized huge amounts of companies. Um, and was taken to one of the, uh, these courts as well, actually, uh, um, as all these people are when you do that kind of thing. Um, and But they survived. And also there was a CIA 
UK back coup in 2019. Um, they came back the next year. Democracy was restored. So would that have happened in a, in a non-multipolar world? Probably not. Uh, the 90s were dominated. The, the Soviet Union had gone. And um, the, the 90s were a pretty bleak time for the left globally. But it's uh, uh, but I think that's changing. And I think that that is something to be welcomed. And I think that is why you see such a huge um, propaganda campaign against China, particularly now. Um, it, it's, it's the new enemy and it's going to be the new enemy. And it's not a new enemy because it's a new threat. It's a new enemy because it's a new threat to the establishment and it's a new threat to the 1% in the West. It's not a threat to us in the same way. And I'll just finish with this. One of the interesting parts um, of this is that the corporate sector is actually at odds with the national security state over China or has been. So I mentioned the David Cameron, George Osborne government in the UK, which began in 2010. They were hugely in favour of China. Um, uh, George Osborne even went to, um, I can't say it now, but the, the province where, I can't say it because my pronunciation is bad, but the province where there's apparently this been this Uyghur genocide, right? He was there in 2015. He went to drum up business, promote and, 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 and spoke lovingly of the Chinese. Um, that has now completely, and, and at that point, the business community was 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 massively promoting it because obviously you want to be on the. It's a huge market. It's going to be the economic superpower for I don't know the next hundred years or maybe more. Why would you want to be at war with it? Uh, and the business community knew that, but the national security state, the securocrats, were always saying, "Well, th this is a threat to our hegemony." And actually, <clears throat> in the UK, particularly. That all flipped. So the power of the business community uh, and uh, in, in terms of the balance with the securocrats flipped during COVID, really. And COVID, since since COVID and during COVID, China has been is now designated often the main security threat for Britain. Um, and Liz Truss actually wanted to, who was the prime minister for about a week in the UK, she wanted to um, designate them an official enemy. Um, so the, the 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 rhetoric is trumpeted up, but it's actually an example of the the security state um, uh, out outgunning the business community, and it doesn't happen very often. Um, it's a set in the U.S. with Cuba. That's another example where the security state has has kind of um, outgunned the business community. Would love to get into Cuba, but the but the security state has always won that that battle. But they're they're, they're few and far between those ones. But um, it does seem now that we're entering a new Cold War. And um, it's going to be bad for everyone, um, including the, the 1%. All right, Matt, thank you for joining us. I'm going to put your book back on the screen. It's Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy, co-authored uh, by you and Claire Provost. Uh, it's excellent work. Um, why don't you tell people where you would like them to buy it, if you have a preferred place for them to go, and then where they can find your work. Um, yeah, you can buy the book. Uh, probably the best place to buy it is on Bloomsbury's website. Um, I can't remember. I think it's bloomsbury.com. Um, and then you can read my work, but also the work of my colleagues um, at declassifieduk.org. And we do cover a lot of this this stuff in terms of aid and corporate power, because the UK is a, a huge corporate um, uh, power around the world. We've got massive multinational companies like BAE Systems, BP, 
HSBC, which are which are British. So um, I'd, I'd say people go there. Um, yeah. And check out independent media like this show.